The Low Post is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on a Monday afternoon, and it's time to dive right in to the latest NBA fiasco. The NBA has, I think, a fiasco per week, a fiasco of two fiascos per month. It might be written into the CBA. This fiasco has all sorts of angles and is potentially going to tilt the balance of power in the NBA. And it is, of course, the James Harden fiasco. And James is doing fiasco like only James Harden could do. And to help us digest what in the hell is happening is our ESPN uh, NBA savant writer, uh, Texas insider, very well connected with the Rockets, just got out of Rockets Media Day or Media Zoom Day. Tim McMahon, how are you? Howdy, partner. How you doing? Well, I'm not in the vortex quite like you are, my friend. You are in. <laughs> you are in the vortex. You're you're learning all sorts of stuff. So I'll, I'll just. You just got out of Media Day. Um, it seems from reading what you tweeted and us tweeted that the Rockets are now referring to what James Harden is doing as a quote unquote holdout. Have no idea when it is going to end. Uh, so what in the, I'll just, what the hell's going on? Yeah. And look, Steven Silas is totally a sympathetic figure in this. The guy grinds for over two decades to finally get a head coach job. And now all anybody wants to talk to him about is a superstar who refuses to show up and wants to get shipped the hell out of town. So yesterday, first day of, of, you know, team practices. So essentially the opening of training camp, Silas says, Harden's not wasn't able to practice with us because of COVID-19 protocols. He's supposed to be in for an individual workout this evening, you know, and we'll see when he's cleared to practice with us. Well, Harden did not show up for that team workout or that individual workout. Uh, I was told by a source that he told Rockets management, ah, I'll report soon. Um, <laughs> more video and, and pictures have circulated from him partying in Vegas clubs last night. So the, Silas doesn't know where Harden is, hasn't talked to him in a while, and this is not clearly about COVID-19 protocols, although I don't think that making it rain in Vegas or attending a little baby's birthday party in Atlanta would would be letter of the law uh, compliance. I, I, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be, but that's not what this is about. This is about Harden basically saying, not only am I not going to show up, but I'm going to party all over the place, not give a damn who sees it, and I told you I wanted to be traded. Well, you know, let's get this done. That now, that's the message that I get. I'm not getting it straight from Harden or, or anybody in his camp. I, I would love for them to explain this. Uh, Silas says, I have no clarity about the message, honestly. I take it basically at face value that he's not here. What the reasoning is is on him. He's the one who can explain why or why not he's here. He says, what's real is he's not here and he has a reason, but that's on him to tell whoever what his reason is <laughs> for Steven Silas. Well, look, whether it's, a, I mean, obviously it's about not wanting to be there because he's not there. If James Harden yeah. was enthusiastic about the 2021 Houston Rockets and was ready to try to chase the championship or try to chase the conference finals or whatever, he would be with the 2021 Houston Rockets. He is, as you say, and as has been all over social media, not with the 2021 Houston Rockets, it is in fact partying without a mask in large groups of people who are presumably indoors all over the on both coasts of the country. 
And let in, in terms of COVID protocols, let me read you a sentence from uh, the 154-page health and wellness guidelines for the 2021 NBA season slash potential train wreck that was sent out uh, last uh, was sent out last week and then updated over the weekend. This is what players are supposed to do from November 27th to December 2nd and on, but because it's assuming that you're reporting by now, which James Harden has not. Uh, all tier one and tier two individuals during this time, and players are tier one, are required to self-quarantine at home other than for essential activities, e.g. purchasing groceries, medicine, or other necessary supplies, taking children to school, to traveling to the team facility for coronavirus testing or medical treatment, if applicable, traveling into the team's market. Pretty sure James Harden has flouted the health and wellness uh, protocols. So the 154 pages he just basically lit on fire. Not Wait, to mention- I do have but, a quote. Does Don Julio qualify as medicine? Look, it depends what it depends on what you're trying to solve, my friend. As Homer Simpson once said, alcohol, the cause of and solution to all life's problems. A line that is frighteningly accurate. Um, it, not only that, um, look, I don't think the Rockets are ready for a fight yet. I don't think the union has even begun to sort of um, dive into what in the hell is going on here. But he's getting pretty damn close if he's not already there to breach of contract because the contract. Oh, no, he's, he's there. If he's, no I don't I, I don't think anyone's ready to label it that yet because it's just politically a dumb thing for the Rockets to do or not not the thing they yeah. want to do anyway. And as soon as you go down that road, almost no matter what the player's conduct is, the union is going to step in and fight on behalf of the player. But the NBA uniform player contract is pretty ironclad and it basically says like you were paid money. Um you you, Show up. <laughs> you you play for the basketball team and there's other clauses of the CBA that I was reading today. Um, you know, they can fine them, they can suspend them, they can do lots of things. And I'll tell you this, Mr. McMahon, I've already heard from, I don't know, three, four people out of the blue today who don't work for the Rockets but work for the other 29 teams saying the league has to step in and do something about this. This is yeah. not okay. And this is going to become the latest referendum on player empowerment and when does it go too far? And boy, do I have a lot of thoughts on that because I think it's a nuanced, fascinating topic. But the situation is out of, it's already spiraling out of control. Yeah, and, and your read is exactly right. The Rockets absolutely don't want to fight. You know, Steven Silas was asked about potential punishment today, whether and you know, it would be fines. And he says we haven't even crossed that bridge yet. Essentially, if this is a fight, it's the Rockets curled up in a ball while Harden stomps on them. But the Rockets are clinging to the hope. Hey, we can be competitive this year. You know, if 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 we're competitive uh, and we're winning, maybe James will get back on board. They are just clinging to this hope. And I mean, how many times have you seen a superstar demand a trade very publicly, and things ended up working out? I will give you Kobe Bryant when they pulled the Pau Gasol trade and won championships. I am having a hard time thinking of another situation like that. But again, that's the Rockets clinging to this hope. But the other thing is, whether they think it's going to work out or or you know whether they're ready to say out loud, hey, we have to eventually trade this guy, there's two years plus a player option for a third, but essentially two years left on that contract. They don't have to rush into trading him to his hand-picked team that cannot deliver what the Rockets consider to be a uh, a reasonable return for a perennial MVP candidate. 
they do they do have that kind of time. First of all, I just want to acknowledge that um, PJ Tucker was asked about this at, at Media Day today, and he said, "I'm here to talk about PJ Tucker," which I just every time we get an NBA situation, he gifts us a quote. So PJ Tucker saying, "I'm here to talk about PJ Tucker" in the third person is is absolutely delightful. Um, look, they don't want to they don't want to punish James Harden because this is what players and their representatives count on. Teams do not want to be known as the team that find a superstar player or punish the superstar player because they fear the messaging that sends out to other superstar players uh, that someday they would like to acquire. So well, they're also just accustomed to kissing James Harden's ass. They've well, been doing it for eight straight years, and that's part of what has gotten them into this predicament where he sees that the championship window has almost certainly closed in Houston. Well, the fact that you pounded the table and said trade Chris Paul and a whole ton of picks for Russell Westbrook and then that thing went up in smoke in a year might have had something to do with that James well and that's that's what's interesting about this because with with the exception of maybe a brief period in which they didn't move away from Dwight Howard as fast as James wanted them to the Rockets have been his team top to bottom they've done everything he's wanted they've they've built everything to his preferences and I wonder I mean, forget the rush trade. It was a disaster. And the James Harden, the James Harden carousel of superstars has now landed right. on John Wall. Like it just keeps on spinning. And and James Harden gets sick of people. They get sick of playing with James. Like this is just what happens. I wonder, I, I'd be curious, uh, your take on this. Like, is any of this happening if D'Antoni and Maury are still there? I think so. You think so? You think uh, yeah. it happens regardless? I, I, I do think so. Um, yes. I, I, I really, truly think that – put it this way. I think that uh, D'Antoni and Maury left because – well, I think D'Antoni left for a variety of reasons. I think that this influenced Daryl to decide that he was going to get out of Dodge before, uh, <laughs> before the, you know, things started really flying around. That, this, was, this was on course to happen whether those guys are, are, are still in Houston or not. And do we believe that Brooklyn is still the one and only place he's, he wants to go? Uh, you know what? That's just pure speculation because, again, I wish I could tell you this is what Harden's saying or his camp is saying. Um, that I know Brooklyn is the one that he has you know, made known he wants to go to. My hunch is that there are other scenarios or at least one other scenario that I think he would deem to be acceptable and that he wouldn't uh, actively try to prevent from happening. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes! Catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak 
performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts, 122 million for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. We should hit the player empowerment thing because, you know, I wrote about this after the Kawhi PG thing happened. And I've generally been like, the system is so stacked in favor of teams controlling superstar players from restricted free agency to Mm -hmm. max salaries to we can trade you at any time and you have no say in it, that I'm generally fine with superstar players exercising their leverage in in most in most ways. And that's what I wrote about in the aftermath of Kawhi. Like a trade demand to me or a trade request to me, it just it's I get why some people think it's unseemly. It puts teams in a tough position. I've seen very little evidence in the in the aggregate. It actually disadvantages the teams because they tend to get okay stuff um, in return for players, and it's and, and getting anything is is usually better than losing a player for nothing. Uh, and all that does to me, as I've said before, is sort of even the balance of power. Right? It's 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 the the balance of power in terms of determining where a player can go has been tilted historically in favor of teams, and the players are tilting it not out of balance but back into balance. That said, what I wrote in that piece is this. You, there, there are things that have happened that tread pretty close to a violation of what I would just consider the ethos of competitive sport and employment. Yeah. And um, Jimmy Butler throwing a one-man rebellion until the Timberwolves <laughs> traded him. I, I don't, I mean, he reported, he practiced, he played hard. I'm not sure it gets there, but it gets close. Um, Kyrie Irving, uh, has disputed this, but a, a number of people have reported it. Joe Varden and I think Dave McMenamin also reported it. Told the Cavaliers, if you don't trade me, I I need knee surgery. I just need right. a knee scope at some point. I'm getting it in training camp. I'm going to miss the first X months of the season if you don't trade me. That certainly that certainly gets you there. That certainly gets you close to that. And I, I remember, you know, a comment, a, a conversation I had with Bill Simmons on this podcast last year. He said, "What do you do if you're Gerson Rosas and and Cat comes in and says I want out?" And my response was, well, too bad. You have four years left on your contract. And Bill said, what if Carl says, well, my back hurts. Yeah. My, my, my back's just, I know x-rays aren't really showing anything, but I, just, I, don't, I don't feel it. It's going to be a couple months before I really, I really feel like playing. My, back, my back's just hurt. And, you know, we made jokes about general soreness and, and all this. But, like, I, I wrote in that piece, there's going to be a player that goes right up to the line, looks at it, and steps over it and gets us from... And and crosses there there look as as pro player as we all want to be and I and I generally am the players make the league I'd I'd love if seventy percent of BRI went to the players they deserve it they're not as wealthy and they they drive the they're the reason that this all this is happening but there is a line somewhere between player empowerment and I guess breach of contract and and I mean, I'm this not, isn't this isn't just Harden crossing the line this is James Harden. In the middle of a pandemic, at the beginning of training camp, forget about crossing the line, going to the front of the freaking VIP line at the club in Vegas, and while the Rockets are practicing a thousand miles away, I mean, the, the, it's look. If he came in and he said, oh, "Back is sore, can't practice," we all would understand basically what that meant. He's that's not even enough. He's basically saying, 
I'm going to make this as ugly a situation as possible. You know, I, I wrote the story weeks ago saying where a rocket source told me that, that the franchise was willing to get uncomfortable. Basically, look, you want to be gone. We get that. We're not going to be rushed into it. Willing to get uncomfortable. Uh, it seems like Harden has taken that as a challenge. Yeah, they're pretty uncomfortable. Uh, they're pretty uncomfortable right now. I don't even want to make an, uh, an analogy to how physically uncomfortable they are. Um, yeah, it's it's look, but like what's going to happen is, and I agree with you. Ninety five percent of the time, the train's out of the station. It's over. There's no turning it back. James Harden will almost certainly get traded if he wants to get traded. Okay, that like that's what right. happens eventually. And, like, and like, so let's say the floor is the Nets package, right? The floor is Lavert, Allen, Dinwiddie, three picks, a swap, mm -hmm. some, and you haggle over where the picks are. Are they farther further out when Houston wants them because Brooklyn could be bad? Are they closer in to current times where Brooklyn wants them because they're pretty damn assured of being amazing? How do the swaps look? What's the price? You haggle over that. That's like that's not nothing. It's not. It chances are it's not going to turn out to be great. It's going to turn out to be like what the Pelicans got for Chris Paul, which is like nobody even remembers anymore. The Hornets got for Chris Paul, no one even remembers anymore because it like looks okay, and then it turns into like eh, not kind of like what the Thunder got for James Harden. Looks okay. Like what does what is it really? You know, yeah, is, Jeremy Lamb, Kevin Martin, a couple picks. You know, Stephen Adams. Like that's the one lasting yeah. thing, and now he's gotten them another pick in George Hill. So blah blah. blah. You know, chances are, but like it's still some tools to play with that's not just James Harden walking away from you in two years for nothing. Um, and and I still think if they don't want the Nets package, I still think another team is going to come in. And, I, and we all know what the obvious suitors right. are, right? Like we can all say them, but James Harden is that good. Like he, he's that much of a difference maker. He's one of the six best players in basketball. He's a walking playoff berth. He's a walking top three MVP finish. You can quibble with his postseason record. And I certainly have, and he certainly yeah. deserves it. And he's throwing up some stinky, 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 stanky stinkers. But the man is amazing. And I just find it hard to believe that Houston, no matter how poisonous this situation gets, is going to arrive at a trade market that's Brooklyn and nobody. I think there will be a team that steps up and says, our offer is better. And you and I maybe can speculate on what those offers might be. I just still think it's going to end up like as as ugly as this is right now and seems right now. I still think it's going to just end up in the same place where it would have ended up if he just showed up and played anyway. Probably. You're probably right. And maybe, look, maybe I'm being naive. I don't know. But you, you say probably. You don't have to agree with me. I don't know. I no, just, I, I, feel, I feel like as much as the Rockets want to think, hey, we can salvage this, I feel like James Harden will be traded by the deadline. I, if, if, I don't feel like the Rockets can be rushed or will be rushed into, into trading him for what they consider 60 cents or 70 cents on the dollar from the Nets right now. I don't think they're going to just say, okay, James bullied us into making a bad deal. But I, I agree with you. Other things will, other opportunities will emerge, I believe, by the deadline. Um, but, you know, part of this, though, is that if, if James is going to be this flagrantly, um, you know, this big of a pain in the ass when he's not happy, then if you are a team that it might make sense for you and you might think it's worth a shot to get two. Uh, you know, minimum of two postseasons of James Harden, but you know he doesn't want that. I, I I think it will limit the pool of potential bidders. Just okay, I'll, I'll throw out an example, uh, and let's start with this: the Rockets want 
in any return for James Harden, there has to be a young franchise cornerstone type of talent and a Jeru Holiday-esque package of picks. So I'm just going to say I'm going to put Michael Porter Jr. in the young franchise cornerstone type of talent and a package of picks and then you know Gary Harris and whatever you need to make the salaries work. But if you're the Nuggets, I don't I don't think you're willing to take that risk. Yeah, you know, I heard Sins on his podcast last week uh, for that very reason, pitching a three-team trade with Brooklyn, Denver, and Houston, where Houston gets Michael Porter Jr., but Brooklyn gets James Harden, uh, and Denver gets a whole lot of stuff. I, I don't, I, I, I don't know whether I, I don't even remember the specifics as I'm saying. Right. This now. I don't know if it made sense for Denver to do it really, but they did get a lot of stuff. Um, look, I agree with you. I think James Harden's 31, right? And like, there are there are teams that are concerned about. Um, like, like how he is going to age, how his game is yeah. going to age, in part because of the perception and certainly recently the reality <laughs> yes. that he is out at night a lot. I was gonna say he has not exactly done anything to diminish that perception over over this weekend. And look, I I I loved to go out at night when before I had a family and I became a loser. Like I loved going out at night. I had no problem with. It. I'm not gonna judge, but. I like if I also was not a basketball player that had to like play games and like not everyone is Lou Williams who can do whatever he wants and come out and drop 30 on you. Like that's just like, that's just what it is. Harden's had a lot of hungover 30 point performances. I'd be willing to guess, but But that that doesn't mean you're going to age gracefully. If you were concerned about that, you're more concerned about that today than you were 48 hours ago. For sure. Um, but I've played this game before of sort of like the which young cornerstone is actually available to you for James Harden. And, and I don't want to repeat it because I've done it a couple times on this podcast. Most of the like you can cross off most of the names. Most of the names that Houston's going to ask for are a no. And you yeah, do you go think from, the Heat are giving up Bam Adebayo? No, no, it's a no. Think, no, I mean, no, the Celtics no. and Tatum. Yeah, no, and the, no, the Jad, no, 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 right? No, all no's. Jamal Murray, no. It's a no, 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 no. Um, <clears throat> the Sixers and Ben Simmons. Well, that's why you end. That's why you end up there, and that's why you end up at Porter, and that's why you end up at places like that. That's why people have floated Atlanta. It's just not floated. Just people are, you know, trade nicks or right. constructing trades. I don't particularly love the Atlanta thing. Uh, and and the challenge is like you could if you're willing to put every pick in, anybody could get James Harden. Like you could make up, you could like why wouldn't Chicago put Levine and Wendell Carter Jr. in every pick in perpetuity and go get uh, James Harden? Well, the answer is you have to have a team for James Harden to play with when you get right. him, or else he's you're not, walking bi- you're in not two building years. around him. Um, he needs to be a finishing piece at this point. And so that's why you know I mean like. It was reported that the Warriors made a call. I don't think that really ever got serious. That's a fascinating, you know, um, cultural clash there between the way those two teams have sort of approached basketball as a as an ideology over the last four or five years. You know, I like Tatum. No, I, I mean, if they call in our express interest in Jalen Brown, don't you have to at least you got to have a meeting about that if you're the Celtics. Like if if, if it's not yeah. Tatum and, and it's Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart and a bunch of picks, like. You at least gather people together and take a poll and t- and talk it out. Like that's that's reasonable. Um, it just it's it's you know New Orleans and Oklahoma City have all the picks. I don't think either. I mean you know the, I mean theory, Brandon Ingram would you could maybe start there with a bunch of picks and we could you could get to something that might make sense. That's does an not, offer. Does, that's an how offer. Would, that, how would how would Zion feel about playing with James Harden? You, you it's know, that's it's an offer I've written ask. about in in in. Uh, I wrote a column about the Nets fit, and I, I said here are some other offers, and I wrote that, and it it 
like you, you could argue it threads the needle between you know satisfying today and keeping tomorrow you know somewhat okay and you know i just it's it just seems like a move that are they really gonna it's just one of those ones like are you really gonna do that um so i don't know you know and that and that just brings you to simmons and look i don't care what anyone says now i just don't i those two teams are going to talk at some point. That that offer oh, is going wow. to come up. I it, it has to. It's too obvious. And I don't, you know, it is interesting because James Harden is two years away from being 33 and asking for a max contract. And Ben Simmons is under contract for like the next five seasons. And, and he's 24 and he just made an all-NBA team. James Harden's better. He's seven, but Ben Simmons is seven years younger under team control at a cheaper price for much longer. Like, and they just made all these deals to surround their two guys with shooting. I could see the Sixers reasonably saying, hey, before I upend everything, and the Rockets may even demand more than Ben Simmons. And I could see the Sixers saying- Oh, no, I'm telling you, they will demand a ton of picks without question. And I could see the Sixers saying, no, he's seven years younger and his contract is what it is. You get nothing more than Ben Simmons and you will like it and that's it. And and maybe they they never talk. Maybe it never happens. I I find that very hard to believe. But they did just upgrade their shooting to see if it works. And I could see them saying, before we upend everything, let's play 50 games. Maybe we're awesome. Maybe Mm -hmm. Joel Embiid has his best season ever. Maybe Simmons makes another step. Maybe this whole thing about he's does he shoot threes? Does he not? Like it's clear that Doc's not going to make that an issue. Maybe that frees him to play inspired with the rest of his game. Maybe with more shooting, we're amazing. I like I just. But, you know, it's it just I don't know what the end game is, but I would be surprised even saying all that, that it's some if at some point the Sixers don't make don't don't have talks about it. Oh, I 100 percent agree with you. Now, the other thing there is the Fertitta Mori dynamic. I mean, let's be honest, Daryl Mori absolutely quit on the Rockets. Whoa. Talking about no, he did. I mean, this is look, he talked about he needed a gap year, spend time with the kids, da, da, da. and then, uh, you know. slept on it next thing you know he's with the Sixers I mean so if you don't think there's hard feelings uh in Houston about not just the way that Daryl Morey left but how he you know just hopped on that Sixers bandwagon so quickly there absolutely are having said all that it's not like there's a lot of hardened potential hardened deals out there that would make sense and I, I think that uh, I, th- I think that Tillman Fertitta could get over any hard feelings for Daryl Morey if that is clearly, you know, the, the best and, and maybe the only way that they're going to get legitimate value for James Harden. And, and and again, the Rockets still have not gotten to the point where they're at least comfortable saying out loud that they're going to end up having to trade James Harden. But, you know, I think we've seen this movie before. And maybe he'll, you know what, they're, like, it's not crazy to say, yeah, he's going to report because if he doesn't report, then a lot of other things could potentially happen. Fines, suspensions, whatever that nobody wants. And, you know, maybe he's just like, to your point earlier, this is one of the first times where, you know, the coach, the GM, the ecosystem is not exactly as James Harden selected it to be. Maybe he's just like not psyched about showing up right now. Maybe like some guys went to the bubble late because they're like, you know what? I'm putting it off as long as I can. I'm just putting it. Maybe he's just putting it off and he shows up and like wall looks all right. Christian Wood's good. James Harden by himself is a walking playoff berth. Like I don't think Houston's out of line or out of out of out of sanity to think 
if we just get him here, he's a competitive guy. He's an Iron Man. He never misses games. He like the team might be pretty good. I don't think that's nuts. It just it just still feels like the 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 horses out of the barn or whatever whatever phrase you want to use. Are you trying to get all Texan with me? I don't know. I mean, they have horses elsewhere. It's not just the Texas thing to have horses. We, in we've barns. got the biggest horses in Texas, though. Do you really? You shoot them up with all sorts of steroids. I don't know. I've actually, believe it or not, I have never rode a horse before, but I have been kicked by one. This is Ooh. true. Yeah. Where? On your body? Where? Uh, I was. I was. Fortunately, not. Not. It wasn't. I guess not a direct hit. I was a young lad, but I was. Uh, I was kicked in the noggin by a horse. Which. Ooh. <laughs> go ahead and. <laughs> go ahead and uh, speculate how much that explains things. Hey, look, animals in general. It just don't mess with them. Animals, like you have these people who have chimpanzees as pets and tigers as pets, and then everyone acts all surprised when the tiger one day is like, I'm a freaking tiger. I'm going to eat you. Like, that's what they do. It's like, don't mess with animals. Horses are, horses are, I'm surprised you survived. I've also never ridden a horse. You know what? Don't really want to. Doesn't seem comfortable. Seems like there's a lot of, a lot of jostling. I'm just not interested in it. Not interested in the experience. Um, well, I don't really know what else to say. I mean, I don't. I don't think there's like another sneaky. Um, well, I actually do th- two other things I want to say. Number one, I, I do think not not Bam, but I do think a, another one is like Miami has a meeting about Hero. Like yeah. if, if you could, and I just texted Bobby Marks to check. They can trade their 2025 and 2027 firsts. Um, as long as they change their protections on the 2023 one. And you know Miami, look, they love Tyler Hero. They don't want to trade Tyler Hero. They don't want right. to trade. They, like, they, it's not even a no-brainer to trade Tyler Hero for James freaking Harden, who's a top three MVP finisher. That's how much they love Tyler Hero. But you have a meeting about it. And maybe Houston loves Tyler Hero. Well, I'll tell you this. It's not possible, but I would love to give a, a few key members of the Nets truth serum. Should such a thing exist? I think there's a Harry Potter truth serum potion. Maybe that could be what we give them. And just ask them, just theoretically, what if what if the Rockets ask for Kyrie instead? What do you do? I mean, if you're asking for my advice, if I'm the Nets, I pull the trigger on that in an absolute heartbeat. Um, oh, there's no question about. That. I mean, that's like like the, that's a no brainer. Like right. James Harden's just better, and you don't compromise your future. You keep all your picks. Everything's great. I think that's I think it's a home run. It's just the assumption that I have. And that most around the league have is that KD and Kyrie came as a package. It's just a non-starter. Like you just, yeah. just say it's just not. And I assume that's still true. That would be an incredible if that actually happened. I think this is the joke we've made for years and years. Like that, it will break Twitter. That might actually break Twitter for a minute if that happens. Yeah, and I have not discussed that possibility with anybody uh, with the Rockets, but I do wonder. I mean, if you are je- – look, this is going to be a painful experience, obviously, for the Rockets. You know if that trade went down, Kyrie would be extremely unhappy. So why would you trade one headache for you know something that's going to hurt just as much? It just is a fascinating theoretical thing, and that's all, that's all it is right now, to be 100% clear. There's nothing to it. It's just sort of like a natural – place of speculation that that you would that you would you know i even wrote in my piece like even if you even if that can't happen if it goes badly between the three of them then Kyrie is your sort of like get our picks back card you trade Kyrie somewhere else down the line and get your picks back well i just don't i mean 
what happens now, Tim? You just you just zoom into Rockets practice every day and ask the same questions and get the same answers until there's a change. I mean, is this is this just your life now? I mean, you know, I, it's it's a fairly large part of my life. I'd like to think I'm a little bit more well rounded than that, but that's of course, not, <laughs> I don't know if that's the truth. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a strange time, and look, this would be a strange time if we were actually able to show up to the arenas but now it's like you kind of and and steven saw at a certain point steven's not going to have anything else to say about it other than like hey i don't have any answers like i told you guys i don't know when he's showing up what do you want you know what more do you want out of me well we just kind of play the waiting game i guess as the as the nba turns all right tim mcmahon stay safe down in texas don't don't mess with any more horses um I, I hope to see you soon, and uh, it's always good to talk to you. And stay on the Harden story, man. You're kicking ass. You're all over it. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you, brother. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. It's demon time on Prize Picks, where you can now win up to 100 times your money. That's right, 100 times your money. With as little as four correct picks, you can turn $10 into $1,000. Demons and goblins are the newest and most exciting way to play at Prize Picks. Squares marked with red demons or green goblins get you different payouts. And as always, Prize Picks is really simple to play. You can make your picks and submit your entry in less than 60 seconds. They even offer injury insurance so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. Quick withdrawals, easy gameplay, and an enormous selection of players and stat types are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Just download the app today and use code LOW for a first deposit match up to $100. That's code LOW on the Prize Picks app for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. All right, let's bring in that rarest of souls, someone who combines volume and efficiency. If you mixed Monte Ellis with LeBron James, you might get ESPN's Kevin Pelton. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. I'm not sure you'd get complete agreement on the efficiency part of that. I think people have conceded the volume for sure. but Well, CJ McCollum has some bones to pick with you, my friend, and that's why we're bringing you on. You released your win projections for the 21 NBA season, which somehow begins in two weeks. I think the Lakers won the championship eight days ago, and the season is starting now. Um, and there was, you know, we'll focus on the West today because I did a lot of East last week. The West is loaded with just... Well, first of all, it's loaded. Second of all, it's loaded with interesting teams. And a couple of projections, I think, raised some eyebrows or drew some curiosity, and I want to hit some of those teams. So let's start with New Orleans. New Orleans was projected 39 wins on your system, your, your complex system that I can't even begin to understand. Solid playoff team, sixth in the West, although, you know, as, as maybe some Portland fans missed, all of, the, all of the projections are very tight. So you projected Portland ninth, but they're very close to third. So it's all together. Um, I find New Orleans sort of inscrutable. Um, not a ton of shooting. Made a lot of changes in the offseason. Drew Holiday out, Eric Bledsoe in, Steven Adams in. I, I think they're going to start, according to what Griff said last week, Lonzo Ball, Eric Bledsoe, Brandon Ingram, Zion Williamson, Steven Adams, which is an interesting lineup, almost totally lacking in shooting outside of Ingram, who 
I, I think the jury's still a little bit out on how real his three pointer was last year. I think it's I think it was the catch and shoot part of it. I think was pretty real, um, and the depth we can talk about is a little questionable. I just find them, I find them hard to project. And here's sort of the epitome of it. Number one, it was much ballyhooed that with Zion on the floor pre bubble, they were kicking the crap out of everybody. It was like plus a gargantuan amount. In the bubble with Zion on the floor, they got the crap kicked out of them and allowed a defensive efficiency so bad that I thought it was a typo when I first looked it up. And Zion, of course, looked like a mummy. And that was not entirely unpredictable given how his his rookie season went. But even if you look pre-bubble at the Zion kick-ass stuff, okay, you referenced this. Mason Ginsburg on Twitter, who covers the Pelicans really well, mentioned this. Um, The Zion starting lineup with Favors, Holiday... Lonzo and and uh, who am I forgetting? Ingram um, was beating up on bad teams, and if you break down their efficiency further, they were killing it in transition, and which makes sense given the makeup of that group, and particularly Zion and Lonzo. In the half court, they scored at a really really bad rate, about ninety six points per possession, which is below average, and that I think reflects the lack of shooting. And if you drilled even further. As now coach Stan Van Gundy and I talked about on the low post, their pre-bubble defense with Zion on the floor, which was so good, I think was largely fictitious based on just randomly awful opponent three-point shooting and some other things. It may have had as much to do with favors as any other player, favors returning from injuries, any other player on the team. So given all of that and the new coach and the new players, I just sort of throw my hands up like, I don't know what the hell this team is, but you, your system seems to think they're pretty damn good. Did that surprise you at all? A little bit. I, mean, I would say yes and no. No to the standpoint that dating back to when Zion came back last season, statistical projections have tended to be pretty favorable for them. You know, you remember that before the shutdown, the 538 model had them as a huge favorite to overtake Memphis for that eighth seed uh, back when we thought it was going to be a normal 82-game schedule. Going into the seeding games, into the bubble, they were a pretty huge favorite in the RPM-based projections I did at that point. Obviously, fell short for some of the reasons you dictated. They didn't just fall short. They <laughs> yeah, they collapsed. fell on their face like a drunk dude leaving the bar at three in the morning. It was so bad. The bubble. It was just. I mean, it cost Alvin Gentry his job. Like, let's. They were. They were just ill. They were just not prepared. They looked unprepared to play basketball again. If the bubble were a those eight games were a hundred yard dash, they fell down about yard sixty. I think is the answer. And then then they played uh, deep reserves for the last forty yards. So from that standpoint, I wasn't surprised. I was a little surprised from the standpoint that, first off, the the moves they made over the offseason seemed to weaken the team. I mean, obviously, Drew Holiday was a huge part of why they projected so well at that point. He's always done well by these, you know, kind of on-off-based metrics. And even though Eric Bledsoe rates pretty well during the regular season, I think is maybe a little underrated because there's just so much focus on how much he struggles during the playoffs that... Well, hey, during the regular season, he actually has been a huge part of Milwaukee's success the last he's, couple He's years. been a plausible all-star choice for the last two seasons. He didn't make the team either season. I believe I put him on my personal team in one of the two seasons. He's been a very good regular season player. So I think that's a big part of it. And, you know, you also talk about what camp projections incorporate, or at least this particular projection. And fit in shooting is a big one that isn't incorporated. We're just rating the players as individual talents. And, 
you know, haven't come up with a good way to sort of adjust that based on who you're playing with. So if playing Lonzo and Eric Bledsoe and two traditional bigs together, you know, shrinks the floor to the point that you can't do anything, then that's not going to necessarily be reflected in these projections. So I was a little surprised from that standpoint that they were in that group of the top nine teams in the West that, as you say, other than the Lakers, pretty interchangeable projection-wise. Well, and what's interesting to me is um, I think to score well, that group is going to have to run like all hell. And they certainly have the personnel to do that between Bledsoe, Lonzo, Zion in particular, right? Stephen Adams will just beat the crap out of people, box them out, allow everyone else to get rebounds just like he did for Oklahoma City, and the rest of the people will run. And Stephen Adams will like jog slowly and then come back and play defense. But historically... Stan Van Gundy's teams have not run like hardly at all. Their pace rankings, I looked at every pace ranking for a Stan Van Gundy head coach team dating back to Miami. 23, 17, 12, 11, 14, 22, 21, 29, 21, 21, 21, 23. They don't force turnovers, which is a which is a classic way to obviously get out, get out and run. The other way to get out and run, obviously, is to get defensive rebounds. And this was a mediocre defensive rebounding team last year. Zion is was a hellaciously bad defensive rebounder, like so bad that it doesn't even make any sense. Steven Adams is obviously a great defensive rebounder. But if they're going to get out and run, and I think they're going to have to, that means Stan is going to have to encourage them to do that. And Stan's smart. He sees that. He's talked about it. I, I assume he's going to get out of his comfort zone that way. And they're going to have to probably defensive rebound really, really well. And I, and I think they can. But there is a little interesting dissonance between, I think, how this team has to and wants to play and how past Stan Van Gundy teams have played. Which maybe speaks to the big difference between this and his last job in Detroit is that he doesn't have any say in the ingredients. He's just cooking at this point with the ingredients that, he, I mean, obviously has some say every team incorporates that opinion, but not the same role that he had when he was vice president of basketball operations. And sort of seeing, because one of the big swing questions here is how much did Stan, the, the president of basketball operations, undermine Stan Van Gundy, the coach in Detroit? And is he still one of the very best coaches in the league? As I think we all thought he was in Orlando. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, that is, I mean, I still think Stan is going to be a top X coach. I'm eight, seven, ten, eleven. I think Stan is. You know, Stan teams are going to pluck most of the low hanging fruit. Now, this is a younger team with sort of kind of wild personnel in terms of the way they play. So I'm not sure if they're going to have the sort of discipline of a typical Stan Van Gundy team, but it will be it will be interesting. And look, obviously, one of the things that the projections are probably taking into account is A, Zion playing all or most of the season, and B, Zion already being a monstrously productive rookie who single-handedly um, gives your team Shaquille O'Neal's shot profile. Like when Zion's on the floor, all their shots come at the rim. They get to the line. They offensive rebound everything. He and Steven Adams are just going to bludgeon people on the offensive glass. They should lead the league in offensive rebounding rate. Um, so, and, and he should probably get better in year two. Brandon Ingram should probably get better in year, what, five? Uh, and and the systems are probably taking that into account. I also worry, so the lack of shooting is an obvious one, right? Um, I worry a little bit about their depth. How many guys off the bench do you trust for this team? I mean, the answer is two, I think. It's J.J. Redick and Josh Hart, right? I felt pessimistic concluding that, but I, I, you know, because, like, it's funny. Like, Jackson Hayes is in his second year, and he's intriguing because he just runs and dunks and, and can catch lobs and all that. And he'll probably get better, right? Nicole Melli is one of those guys who 
he's like a regular season innings eater. Like you can play him in a lot of regular season matchups. He can shoot. He can play with Zion. He can play maybe even with Adams a little bit. They played him at some four last year, which I think is untenable. In the playoffs, I think if they ever get there, it will become a different story for him. So like they'll get something out of him. Alexander Walker, um, again, year two guy, didn't really crack their rotation for the most part last year. Maybe they'll get something out of him. But yeah, their depth is like you get to guy eight and you start to get a little worried because all those guys are pretty young and untested after that. And then if you're worried about guy eight, well, you know, the simplest reality of the NBA is someone in guys one through seven, if not multiple someones, are getting injured for prolonged periods of the year, let alone this year, which is going to be a freaking mess for at least the first three or four months of the season. And you know, maybe maybe that happens to everybody then. You know, maybe everybody is playing guys eight to thirteen way more than they want, so it all cancels out. But um this is this is the year for depth, I think. This is a year where depth is gonna come in handy, and that makes me a little nervous about the Pellies. Yeah, and the other thing is they're gonna have a hard time making in season improvements because usually if that's your issue is guys eight through fifteen like it's a lot easier to find the eighth guy than it is to upgrade your starting small forward or what you know whatever that need might be or to find the third best player on your roster. But they're five hundred thousand from the luxury tax with a full roster if they keep fifteen. Um, they that was the downside of spending twenty eight million on Stephen Adams after his trade bonus was picked up so that they could uh, extend him. Is you're paying him all that money. They couldn't dip into their mid-level exception at all to upgrade the bench, and they had to fill out with just a bunch of minimum salary flyers, the Wenyan Gabriels and the Billy Aaron Gomez's. I kind of liked I thought Wenyan Gabriel had like a sneaky, fun little bubble time. I was a little surprised that Portland moved on from him after that, although I think clearly they think Harry Giles is like the better long-term project of those former Kings backup big men. Wenyan Gabriel plays hard, man. He's like diving around, flying around. He plays hard. I I, I, I I was surprised, frankly, that he hung around in free agency as long as he did. I thought somebody would snap him up at maybe a little bit more than the minimum or something right up early, but nobody did. So I think a worthy, but again, flyers, like Sundarius Thornwell, flyer. Like you're not really probably going to count on anything from him. Yeah, so I I would have preferred to spend less money on the center position somehow, even if that was maybe slightly less money if someone like Al Horford and invest a little bit more in terms of the filling out the bench. The Adams extension surprised me, and I love Stephen Adams, like one of the most delightful people in the league, is about all of the right things, plays incredibly hard, and does do the cliche little things that help you win, like boxing out, setting screens, like as cliche as it is, like that stuff actually matters. It's it's really important. I just, I'm just interested to see, I mean, everyone is fetishizing sort of Zion at center lineups, right? And the more you spend on traditional centers, the less you're aligning your team to play that way. I actually don't think that's big of a deal. I think Zion at center, I think the train got out of the station a little early in the media, and I'll include myself in that, uh, it, for reality. Like, that's it's going to be tough to live defensively with Zion at center, even though you can switch, like, you can try to do some things, and we'll see it, but... It's just a, a center who can't shoot at all. Like, Steven Adams is, like, a floater. That's it. That's as far as his range extends. In games, like, I don't know, he shoots threes in warm-ups. That's cool. Like, in games, it's floaters. <laughs> I just didn't expect them to spend that much money. And, like, Steven Adams has had a lot of bumps and bruises in the last couple of years and has looked pretty creaky at times. Like, that deal made me a little nervous. Yeah, and to commit to it without seeing what the fit looks like whatsoever. I, it's interesting because I think there was a happy medium. Uh, as we talked about, you know, they were better with Zion in favors. 
despite the fact that Favors isn't really a stretch option. You know, he's a little bit more than Steven Adams, but not a full stretch option. But there were other directions you could have gone at center. Horford being one of them. Could they have tried to get into a Miles Turner sign-in trade involving Gordon Hayward? Like, you know, you've mentioned on the pod that the Celtics were exploring interest in Turner. That would have been someone I would have been looking at at New Orleans Orleans because he seems like an ideal fit in terms of age and skill set next to Zion. Well, there have been reports that New Orleans has sniffed more than sniffed around. Whatever is the next step of sniffing around um, uh, Miles Turner before, and I believe those reports to be true, but I don't know. They, I think they're old. I don't think I don't know how serious it was this time around. Um, I, I I feel like this is a team that I, I've gone back and forth so many times on them. Their their pre bubble play, I was ready to say this could be a in an eighty two game season like a 47, 48 win kind of team. Now I'm I'm finding myself pulling back a little bit. Um, we'll see. I mean, a lot of it just depends on like if Zion is this good and is even better than he was last year and plays, make up a number fifty eight games, sixty games. Like maybe that's the only thing that I because he's it, and part of it is he's got to get in shape and play defense because he can't. If Zion, who looks like he did in the bubble, is not going to help you win as many games as as he should. And we know it's in there. He was a force defensively at Duke. Obviously, the responsibilities are very different in the defensive end in the college game than they are in the NBA. But that was one of the biggest reasons we were so excited about him is all the steals and blocks he was racking up at Duke. And we just didn't see that same player in the NBA. But yeah, uh, he's projected for 56 games in the projection. So I think that's That's about right number. Yeah. I mean, one thing they have going for them is that, uh, as I just talked about with Tim, the Rockets are in a state of, we'll just be polite and call it disarray. It's just not, it's not, it's not going great in Houston. And the team that I want to talk about now is, I think, one of the other big wild cards in the league. And it feels crazy to say that, but I don't know what to expect from the Golden State Warriors. And you have them projected, whoa, let me keep scrolling down, Kevin. You have them projected 14th. In the Western Conference. Basically, you have them projected as a whole bunch of scrubs, Kevin Pelton. That's what you have labeled the Golden State Warriors. I'm putting words in your mouth. 31 wins, 9% chance of making the playoffs. Obviously, these projections were done after Clay Thompson's injury. Their starting five is going to be Curry, Wiggins, Oubre, Draymond, question mark. I'll just pencil in Marquise Chris. I like the season he had for them last year. I'm going to pencil him in. Maybe Wiseman takes the spot early. Maybe he takes it late. Maybe he never takes it. Maybe Kevon Looney, Steve Kerr's all-time favorite player, gets the starting spot. I don't know. Um, Off the bench, Brad Wanamaker was an interesting little signing for them. I like that one. Can play next to Steph. Helps you play Draymond at center. Bazemore, I thought, was a really important signing for them. We can talk about him if you want. Eric Paschal, I put first-team all-rookie. I like him. No one else I particularly care for other out of their other than their centers who are okay. So their depth is so so. I just don't know what to make of this team. I picked, uh, and and part of the struggle is I don't know what to make of how they started the season last year and what it means for this year. So they were one in three when Steph broke his hand. All three losses were complete whitewash blowouts, like just destructo mode blowouts. Um, their starting lineup in those games was D'Angelo Russell, Steph, Glenn Robinson III, Draymond, and just a poo-poo platter. They switched the center every game four times in a row, I think. 
Is that worse than Curry, Oubre, Wiggins, Draymond, Poo Poo Platter? I think it probably is a little bit worse. I think this lineup, this year's lineup, is a, is more dynamic, more athletic, can can run more, can cause a little more havoc, despite the downgrade in shooting from D'Angelo Russell to whoever you you want to put in his place in this lineup. I still look at it and I'm like, I'm intrigued because Wiggins, Oubre, Draymond are, is just gonna is gonna be the most athleticism. And, and in terms of Draymond pushing the pace, that kind of all-court speed and game that they've had there. I mean, not the most athleticism, but it's just like it's an athletic, rangy, kind of fun lineup. And But I just don't – the lack of shooting, just like we talked about with New Orleans, could be troublesome unless Wiggins or Oubre really pop from three-point range. I just don't know what to make of this team. And you have them – you, you must have been surprised that they came in this low. I, you know, I had really started to run some projections after Clay went down, and so I had a sense that it was it was not going to be good in terms of that. I didn't know if it would be that it would be all the way down in 14th, and and this is a case where that does kind of accurately describe where they are in terms of the actual projection relative to everyone else. Now there's a lot of uncertainty still at that point, but yeah, it's it's not a we're just on the fringe of the playoffs, but happen to be outside of it kind of projection. I mean, I guess. The system is probably looking at what Draymond did last year and looking at his age and making the opposite assumption that a lot of people in basketball are making, which is that is the the common assumption is, well, Draymond will just bounce back because the games matter now. And last year was an aberration. I would bet your system is making the opposite assumption that that was indicative of a player who may start to be in decline now. Right. I mean, at his age, yeah. So he's still projected as an above average player. I mean, I would say it's probably more of an issue for the Warriors that he and Steph are their only players projected better than league average. And the question of who's the third best player on the Warriors, I assume it's Kelly Oubre, but it's, it's, not, a, it's not a great question for them. Uh, no. I mean, I, I think Wiggins was all right there last year. I think he, yeah, I think he, he, he was fine. Um, who knows how much to take from it? That's the thing. Their season last year was so screwed up and had so many iterations that it's hard to take any of them particularly seriously. I think Ubre will do well there. Obviously, the shoot can he get his shooting to thirty seven percent, thirty eight percent? Is thirty five percent even an outlier for him? That's a question mark. Wiggins has been a consistent what thirty two percent shooter from three basically every year now. Um, doesn't play with a great feel or IQ, um, but they have some interesting tools here, and I think Baysmore. I'm surprised that Bazemore was just sitting there for them at the minimum because he, once he got traded to the Kings, he kind of went crazy. Like he, he was maybe the best basketball he's ever played in his career. And I wonder if they even get to a point where they try to start him just to get more shooting on the floor. I, I It doesn't seem likely to me given the amount of money invested in Wiggins and, and Oubre, I think is a perfectly worthy starter. But I think Bazemore, I think it... Maybe this is to your point why they're picked at 14th. I think they need a lot of Kent Bazemore. Kent Bazemore, Golden State bench cheerleader, has now become Kent Bazemore, like, essential player for the Warriors. I mean, the Bazemore-Ariza trade was fascinating because both of those guys were having tremendously disappointing seasons at the time they were traded. Bazemore couldn't make a shot in Portland. Ariza was buried in the rotation in Sacramento. And then both of those guys probably played way better after the trade. Ariza was, you know, kind of exactly what Portland needed is a a three with size who can make shots. And Bazemore, as you said, you know, played really well in Sacramento. I mean, I I think he helps them to the standpoint of 
you know, one of the things they're better equipped to do than they were in the first five game, four games of last season is to play those those small ball lineups with Draymond at center. Ubre is sort of can be power forward ish more so, I think, than Wiggins. He, you know, he's done that in Washington with yeah, Otto they have Porter two Jr. guys off the bench, two perimeter guys off the bench in Wanamaker and Bazemore that you can flip in for their center and feel like. Those are okay lineups. And really when they were rolling and they had the death lineup, they had the death lineup and then they had what I called the coma lineup with Sean Livingston instead of Iguodala. So they had a couple of options for that type of lineup. Yet they'll get there. And I think actually Draymond-Pascal as a 4-5 combination is interesting to me. But again, it's not a lot of shooting and they just don't have a lot of shooting. But I like the sort of they're very similar built players, right? And they, they have they don't have similar games, but positionally on defense, they're pretty similar. I, I like that look as well for them. I, and I think that was probably part of the appeal for the Warriors about Pascal. Yeah, you mentioned the bench earlier, and I think do think one of the question marks and maybe one of the places where the projection disagrees from the way other people would see it is that they tend to have a lot of guys on the bench whose RPM has historically not been nearly as good as they've been seen. So Pascal was one of those guys uh, in terms of putting up really good uh, box score stats last year, but he he's never had, I, I don't feel like, particularly strong steal rates and just not been a particularly efficient scorer, so he doesn't doesn't fare well in RPM. And then Wanamaker is the other one, which is kind of a surprise, that he's got a below-replacement RPM, and, and the Celtics don't miss him much in the projections as a result of that, and the Warriors don't benefit as much as you might think for getting him at a seeming discount. I kind of like Brad Wanamaker. He looked very comfortable in the playoffs, um, made shots for them in the playoffs, He's big, plays hard. I, I like him in the role that he's getting. I liked him in his role in Boston. I like him for the Warriors. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a really interesting year for Steph because obviously last year was kind of a lost season. Everybody was curious last season with KD gone and Clay out. Okay. People thought, people, people a lot of people thought, well, you were the unanimous MVP of the league. Um, the hierarchy for quite a long while was LeBron, Steph, and everybody else. This year, I think, is a fairer shot for that argument to play out. Like, I, th- I think this year's team's a little better than last year's team was at the beginning of the season. It's still an absolutely enormous burden on him. Um, you know, we've seen him be able to run a pick and roll, draw two guys, three guys, and just the ball pings around and someone else gets an open shot. And it's all because of Steph. But I just remember I had Max Kellerman on my podcast once, and he went on. He just fundamentally does not believe that Steph Curry can be in the same conversation as LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, Kevin Durant, probably Giannis at some point, because he's too small. He said, he, he said in a sport that self-selects for height, a 6'3 player just cannot be in their conversation. And I think all of us who watched the rise of the Warriors, who watched Stephen Curry was a revolution. I mean, if you go back to 2013 and what he was doing to the Spurs in the playoffs— even before Steph became Steph, if you watch that playoff series and you watch Tim Duncan be like, I don't know what the <laughs> I'm supposed to do about this, you felt it. Like you felt like this is this is a revolution in basketball. And so obviously the shooting made up for the height and the size and all the sort of traditional markers of apex predator superstardom. Um, you do wonder though. Like, he, he can't control the game, I don't think, in the same way that a, a LeBron, who's a one-of-a-kind guy, or Durant can just hold the ball 
at the triple threat position, go one-on-one, bulldoze to the rim. Like, he can do some stuff like that. He can use his jump shot to get people to lurch out at him and then go to the rim. But I, I, I'm fascinated. It, it, Steph's legacy is airtight, right? Like, some people will say he needs a finals MVP, whatever. I don't particularly care about that. Uh, to me, he's already an all-time player. He's a Hall of Famer. Obviously, that's all done. If if But this is a big year for the for the possibility that he gets into the top 15 of all time conversation, which I don't quite think he's in yet, uh, which is weird to say for a two-time MVP. Maybe you disagree with that. This is a bi- I think this is a big year for that, and I'm really fascinated to see sort of how he manages this roster. I think he probably belongs there, but I, I agree with you that he probably needs more in terms of longevity to get there, and we, we just haven't seen that yet. I, I think it's tough to use this season as a referendum on prime Steph because part of the issue of his age is that, you know, if he loses a half a step or if durability becomes a greater issue, then he doesn't necessarily, can't necessarily extend his contributions in the same way that we've seen LeBron obviously do it deep into his 30s. So that's a challenge. But I think there's even more playmaking responsibility on him than we thought there was going into last season, because at least there was D'Angelo Russell there as an option last year. Now it's him and Draymond. But if you're talking about creation from someone who can score, like, Steph is it like he he, and so I think the you know it's an interesting question how good they're going to be when Steph is healthy but obviously the biggest question about the Warriors is how many games does Steph Curry play because they are probably drawing dead without him Uh, maybe I'm just blinded by the fashion and just the sheer handsomeness (laughs) but I think Kelly Oubre can make enough catch and go plays to keep the offense moving. You're not going to give him the you're not I don't want to run Kelly Oubre 20 pick and rolls a game. I'm just saying if Steph breaks down the defense and kicks the ball to Kelly Oubre, he's just crazy enough and I mean that in a good way. Just like super confident. I mean nobody talks trash a little bit above their stature in the NBA better than Kelly Oubre. <laughs> Kelly Oubre will talk trash to anybody and he does not care about the repercussions. So I'm confident that he can kind of keep the offense moving. I I, I haven't done my playoff picks yet. I just know that I'm not. I don't. I'm with the Pelicans and the Warriors are in the same stratosphere to me, where I am not yet convinced. Pending Houston and some other things, that this is a playoff lock by any means. And your projections sort of bolstered my gut. And I picked them to miss the playoffs last year, and my gut felt similarly queasy. Let's talk about one more team real quickly that your system was very high on, projecting them third in the West. And you, I think, correctly pegged them as, as sort of a forgotten team. And that's the Utah Jazz, um, who will get Boyan Bogdanovich back healthy, re-signed Jordan Clarkson, uh, and and uh, acquired, reacquired old friend Derek Favors to be Rudy Goes Bears backup and probably sometimes starter. Um, they have like five different plausible starting lineups. I think I know which one they will go with, but the sheer number of plausible starting lineups, I think, bodes well Um for their for their ability to win a lot of games and all of their core lineups or or most of their core lineups were excellent last year um and so obviously Mike Conley will be back and and he he had a, they had the weirdest season in the league last year they had super high expectations they got off to like a 500 start then Conley got hurt they went crazy then Conley got came back and they sort of went up and down then of course in the playoffs they destroyed Denver looking like the greatest offensive team since the Harlem Globetrotters and then they lose three games in a row Mike Conley's buzzer beater rattles out and they're out of the playoffs I really like this team I don't I'm not necessarily ready to say they're like a title contender but but I think they're right 
one rung below. I just think they're rock solid. I think they're deep and just I they're not going to beat themselves. They don't have a weak spot like like uh, what happens when Gobert sits kind of weak spot. I don't think they have an obvious sort of like these are their 12 minutes a game where they're vulnerable. I just think they're a rock solid team. Yeah, I mean that Conley shot is one of the fast, like fascinating what ifs in NBA history. I like, screamed. The I shrieked. I jumped off my couch and shrieked. I mean, if if he makes that shot, the Nuggets aren't there to beat the I Clippers. Shri- I shrieked when Torrey Craig took the layup. First, that, that was like a pre-shriek. <laughs> yeah. and then I somehow I... missed that. I was like so caught up in what had happened at the other end of the court. With that was what Donovan Mitchell turning it over. Gary Harris poked it away from behind. I think. Yeah, that I I somehow like was looking down, didn't pay attention, and then when I look up, the shot is going going up from Conley, and I'm like, wait, what? Where did where did that come from? I emitted a noise that could just be best described as a shriek. I don't think it's a noise I've ever made before or since. It frightened my wife, who didn't understand why I was reacting this way. Uh, it is one of the all time glorious NBA sequences for just sheer absolute madness. But it's a huge sliding doors moment in the history of the league because if Conley makes that shot, the Clip- the Nuggets aren't there to play the Clippers and to come back from that 3-1 deficit. Who knows what happens with the Clippers' playoff run? Is Doc Rivers still there? He's not in Philly. Like, there's just all these tentacles that are coming out from this one shot. And, and it was I- down, man. It was down. It was down on TV. People who I talked to who were at that game sitting with the right vantage point, like behind Mike Conley, all thought it was down. I just can't imagine if I were Tim Connolly or Dennis Lindsay, I probably would have just fainted. Like I would have needed <laughs> medical. I don't know how you run a team, watch that happen, and just like trudge back to your hotel room. I don't know what I would have done. I mean, our buddy Seth Partnow last year during the playoffs was just like thrilled to not be going through the emotions of the playoffs now that he's uh, joined us in media at the I Athletic. I think if I, were, if I worked for the Jazz, I think there's like a 60% chance I would have violated the bubble and like brought down the whole <laughs> league, like s- somehow just in, in anguish. I would have ruined the whole thing. No, no jury would convict. I... So one of the things that changed because of that is now Denver is seen as this team on the ascent, which, you know, I think they are with their their young talent because they got to the conference finals, because they upset the Clippers, took a game off the, the Lakers in a competitive series. And I think Utah is seen as a different tier for, than them, even though they played evenly over a seven-game series. Both teams had some pretty crucial injuries in that series. Gary Harris came back midway through. Will Barton was out the whole series. Bogdanovich on the Jazz side. The Jazz were the, you know, I think a game and a half back in the standings, but they had the better point differential last year during the regular season. And I think they had the better off season in terms of what it means in setting them up for this year. You know, favors, I I don't know if that was the, the single best possible use of their non-taxpayer mid-level exception. And they've got some depth issues as well because they're dealing with a hard cap, uh, you know, similar to a lot of teams this year and uh, have several young guys off their bench who, who aren't proven. But, you know, they've solidified that backup center spot. Clarkson solidified the backup guard spot. One of those guys, whether it's O'Neal or Ingles, I, coming I off the bench I don't believe Jordan Clarkson. I don't believe the season he had last year. Like, I understand the Jazz were in that cap hell prison where it was like, you just don't have a choice. I don't believe the shooting numbers. I don't believe them. I have to see him, dupl- I have to see him come close to replicating it. This is something I've never said before. I'm more optimistic about Jordan Clarkson than you are. Yeah, I've never been. I've never. I've never been that big of a Clarkson guy. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, me neither, for sure. So that's that's an unusual position for me to be in. But uh, I, I mean, I think even if he plays 90% of what he did last season, then, you know, the other question is, what are they going to get from Mike Conley? Because he was at the center of that uneven season that you talked about, struggling so badly his first time out of Memphis. Is he was he washed up? You know, was the big question mark. Then I think he played reasonably well the rest of the season and and reasonably well in the bubble, despite dealing with his own, you know, being away from the team for the birth of his child. So, you know, if they get Mike Conley, who's somewhere in between the one they saw last year and the one we saw in eighteen nineteen, who was a legit All NBA con- contender, then I think that in particular solidifies the Jazz as a. Uh, you know, a favorite at that point for home court advantage in the first round. And I think they will give him every chance to be that player. I think he will start. I think their starting lineup when the season opens will be Conley, Mitchell, O'Neal, Bogdanovich, Gobert, which was their starting lineup when last season opened. Interestingly, their starting lineup that they used when Conley was injured, which is uh, Ingles in place of Conley, so no true point guard, was plus 14 per 100 possessions. It was one of the best lineups in the league. And I thought... Well, maybe that'll be grist for like Mike Conley becomes sixth man, and that's the way it works. Now that's he's less sort of central in that role with Clarkson also coming off the bench as another ball handler. But my indications are that they're going to give Conley a chance to start; that that will be their starting lineup. Um, on favors, I didn't mind it. I understand he's a center. Centers are unsexy. Spending the mid level exception on a on a backup center is probably not wise. Like the Mason Plumley deal didn't really. Didn't really get that one. Uh, although he is a Team USA mainstay. That's one thing you can't take away from Mason Plumley. He's a Team USA mainstay. Um, in, in Utah's defense, two things. Here are the plus-minus numbers on Favors and Gobert together for the past three seasons that they played together. Plus 8 per 100, plus 9 per 100, plus 5 per 100. Mostly due to incredibly stingy defense. So it can work. And it that that's like if we get the Lakers. That's an if we get whatever matchup and we need it. It can work. And the other thing is, like, we have seen teams lose playoff series because the, the, the fall off from guy on the court to guy off the court is so drastic that just those 12 minutes lose you the playoff series. We saw it with Joel Embiid and Philly against Toronto. And so I don't mind when you've stocked your team with perimeter scorers who, who are average to worse defensively and put that kind of burden on Gobert. And then Gobert goes out and you're hopeless. Like, I don't mind a bulwark. I don't mind paying full freight for a bulwark for those non-Gobert minutes. And the last thing I will say is, to your sliding doors point, I think you're, you're right. They almost won the series. I will say the way they played the last three games of that series was not inspiring. It was kind of like Donovan Mitchell or pray to God that you get a basket. Like They didn't really have a lot of juice. Part of the reason I'm optimistic about them, though, is that Bogdanovich was such a big part of their playbook and such a big part of their offense that I think had he been there, it would not have looked so much like Donovan Mitchell or Prey. So I I have things tugging at me in all directions, but I do like this team, and I didn't mind the favor signing. Yeah, and I don't want to be too negative uh, about it. I I think he's going to provide a lot of value for them. Strictly as a backup center, and then yeah, I do think there's matchups where you can still play him together, even if that's not the primary starting lineup anymore. I think the challenge is more kind of what it meant in terms of all the other things they had to do. So if you've got the mid-level committed to favors, now all of a sudden it's re-signed Clarkson, or we have no ability to replace him. So you end up going a pretty big number for Clarkson, and then they gave up three second-round picks to get off of. Backup centers. 
yeah. yeah, Ed Davis and Tony Bradley to make sure that they could do this and, and not have to have an issue with the hard cap. So it was it was kind of the secondary effects more than the contract itself. I guess we should also mention the fact that Rudy Gobert is extension eligible and there has been nary a word, nary First time I've ever said the word nary, I think, in my life. Nary a word about a Gobert extension. I am betting that the two sides get something done and this does not become a festering issue, but the silence on it is is has been interesting. But look, KP, you probably have like four different columns to, to write uh, between now and tomorrow. Uh, we will reconvene to talk about some of the more interesting teams um, in both conferences as we... Uh, as we ramp up to the season, my friend, uh, thank, thanks as always for your wisdom. Everyone's got to read you every day at ESPN.com. And uh, I don't know, any parting thoughts on these teams? Are you ready for the season? Are you geared up? I, it doesn't matter whether I'm ready, I guess is the answer there. No, it doesn't matter. Okay, KP, thank you. Thanks for having me. ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Capital One.